and we didn't realize that all the gas stations closed at like 9 o'clock. When we were driving on the ice, it like caved in and we went down. He said, I'm going to get you back for this. They both got out and were flying around. It's time for the Apple Seed, a show filled with all kinds of stories for you and your family. Here at the Apple Seed, we believe in the power of great stories. They can help you find the words to express your thoughts and feelings. And we hope that in today's stories, you'll find something meaningful to you that will open up some great conversations with the people that you love. At The Appleseed, we believe that great stories can change your family's world. I'm your host, Sam Payne. And today on the show, we've got a story from the wonderful Nebraska storyteller, Pippa White. Pippa specializes in telling true stories from history. And a lot of them feature children. And she's got a great one for us today about a young orphan boy who's sent far from his home in search of a new family. And one of the things I love about Pippa's historical tales is how they can feel so relatable despite the distance of time and circumstance. This story takes place in the 1920s. That's a full hundred years ago. But somehow there's a lot to relate to in this story. I don't know how old you think I am, but believe me, I was not around in the 1920s, and I've also never been an orphan, but still, I can relate to the feeling of being far from home and family, and I've definitely felt like this at times. But what could he do, and where did he belong, and why did everything always seem so wrong? Just a moment from Lee Nailing's Orphan Train story told by Pippa White. We're going to hear the whole story in just a moment. And throughout the story, you'll see that Lee had some legitimate reasons to be distrustful of some of the people who were supposed to help him. But listen for the ways that young Lee learns to open his heart to the people around him. That's coming up first on today's show. And after that, we'll bring you another story that's kind of along those same lines. It's a story of a guy, Ben Shalati, host of the popular podcast Questions from the Closet and the unlikely friendship that Ben found when he arrived in a new place. The story all starts with a kind of daunting request from a near stranger. And she said, well, I I feel like I'm going to die in the next few years. Would you be willing to write my life story for me? Just a tiny clip there of a story we're going to bring you later in the hour with Ben Shalati. So let's get things started now with storyteller Pippa White. And before we jump into her story, I wanted to play just a little bit of a conversation that I had with her during her visit to the Appleseed Studio. I think it'll help paint a picture of Pippa's performance in your mind just a little better. Our radio audience, of course gets all of the wonder of your storytelling, but doesn't get any of the hats. Well, that's right. <laughs> they, they don't. I didn't even think about that. <laughs> Let's talk about hats. Uh, one, one thing you need to know about Pippa's performing is she travels with a hat stand. Yes, I do. And uh, and there and it's covered in hats. Tell us about uh, tell us about finding the hats that you use. You know, I don't really know why. The first performance piece that I created was about the orphan train, and I knew I had all these characters. There are about seven children in that in that piece, and I knew I had to, you know, make the make it clear who was who. And so I just thought that the quickest and the easiest thing to use would be hats. So that's how that all began. But I've always loved hats. I'm I'm sorry we don't wear hats like we used to. (laughs) Pippa White talking about the way that she uses hats in her performances. And as you listen to the story, you can have a little fun picturing Pippa and those hats. If you think of the caps from Newsies, maybe you'll be in the ballpark, right? So let's get down to business and hear Pippa White perform Lee Nailing's Orphan Train Story, recorded live in the Appleseed studio before our terrific studio audience. And uh, thank you, Sam. And thank you, audience. I do definitely feel welcomed. Uh, Right now, I have an orphan train story for you. Are you all familiar with the orphan trains? Yes? Most everybody? Good, a little bit. Okay, not not everybody. Uh, no, that's okay. That's okay. Uh, it's a kind of a forgotten piece of American history. In the mid 1800s, there were thousands, literally, some some say as many as 30,000 homeless children living on the streets of New York City. Isn't that astonishing? 
Uh, it was due to a lot of things, mostly poverty, of course, uh, also uh, immigrants having a very hard time, and also many times they were real orphans. These were children who had lost both parents. The problem became so great that a wonderful man named Charles Loring Brace opened an orphanage. There were only a handful of orphanages in the whole state of New York. But as soon as he, he opened the orphanage, it was full. And another orphanage, it was full. Another orphanage. So they realized they couldn't solve the problem with orphanages. So they got this great idea. Let's put these children on trains and send them out to new homes in the rest of the country. Mostly the Midwest, also upstate New York. They felt that Farms would have lots of food for these children and lots of room for them. And so this was really the beginning of foster care in our country. These trains ran for 75 years. Thousands of children, they think at least 250,000, maybe more, uh, rode these trains to new lives. And sometimes they got great lives and sometimes they got so-so lives. And sadly, there were a few who didn't do too well, but not too many. So what I have for you now is an orphan train story. This is Lee Nailing's story. Lee, uh, his story was written up in a book called Orphan Train Rider, One Boy's True Story, written by Andrea Warren and published by Houghton Mifflin. And I'm grateful to both the author and the publisher for letting me tell a much truncated version of that story. Uh, Lee's story is uh, quite unusual. He, there were, there's some rough edges to this story, I will warn you, but I think it's a story of transformation, and I like stories of transformation. One thing I need to tell you before I begin, Lee had a brother named Leo, and Leo figures in the story, so don't get confused. We've got Lee and Leo. So I'm going to tell you a story, typical and true, kind of things these kids went through. This is a story of a boy named Lee from upstate New York about 1923. He was six years old then, one of seven. Mama died in childbirth, went to heaven. Papa couldn't cope one thing and another. I can't farm all day and then be a mother. So to the oldest three, he just said, go. You're on your own. You can get a job, you know. The infant and the two-year-old he took to a friend, but Lee and brother Leo to the orphanage did send. Lee said he belonged to a family one day, the next to an institution, cold and gray, with stern, unfriendly adults, strict was the norm, not enough food and seldom warm. Two years of that with public school, where he was teased and taunted, orphan fool, a life so lonely, bleak, and sad. Lee developed a temper, short and bad. Two years of that. Then, lo and behold, you're going on a train, these kids were told. You're going on a train to a new mom and dad. You're getting a family. Aren't you glad? Well, no, thought Lee, I've got a dad. My own family home is what I want so bad. But what could he do at age eight or nine? Nothing to do but toe the line. Strange thing happened, though, when he was boarding that train. Whom should he meet but his dad again, with the baby brother, now four years old, and a pink envelope, or so I'm told. This here's your brother, Gerald's his name. Look after Leo and Gerald the same. In this envelope is my address. Write to me when you all get out west. So Lee was ecstatic, said nothing's wrong. My dad'll come and get us before ere long. Said to the chaperone, see this envelope here? It's from my father, he said with a tear. So he slept that night to the clickety-clack, not a worry or a care. He'd soon be back, back with his brothers and older sis, back with his father. He was sure of this. But in the morning, the envelope wasn't there. He searched in his pockets, under the seat, everywhere. And the chaperone said, you must forget your past. And nine-year-old Lee was simply aghast. 
Lee could just feel his temperature rise, anger and bitterness at adults' lies. She had taken that envelope, that much he knew, and there wasn't a thing a little kid could do. The train traveled for miles, made several stops, where some lucky kids got moms and pops. Then they landed in Texas, tired and beat, were marched to a church on aching feet. And people came and people chose. I'll take this girl, I'll call her Rose. Maybe I'll take two, a he and a she. Oh no, thought Lee, will anyone want three? And then a couple chose Gerald, and he fell in their arms. But when they got to the door, he turned in alarm. I want my brothers, he cried. You could hear the fear. Nothing to do but hold back the tear. And then a couple chose Leo. Lee thought he would die. Take my brother too, pleaded Leo with a cry. And the man and his wife, they exchanged a long glance. Yes, they said, we'll take that chance. So I'm going to warn you right now, though things seem pretty fine, Leo was happy, but Lee still pined. For the envelope, a future, a future with his dad, Leo was okay, but Lee pretty bad. So he sulked and he moped and he would kind of brood. He wasn't polite. He was downright rude. But... What could he do, and where did he belong, and why did everything always seem so wrong? The chaperone came and took Lee away. They can only handle one, so Leo will stay. I've got another family that's going to take you. Cheer up, Lee. Don't look so blue. Lee didn't even get a chance to say goodbye to Leo, his brother, I don't know why. Placed with another family, he made a childish mistake, got moved again like so much freight. Now, if you're beginning to think, I've had enough of a story about a kid who had it so rough. Bear with me, folks, it gets better, I swear. Lee had a journey to take, and he's almost there. Almost. By now, he was miserable. Things couldn't be worse. He hated everyone. His life was cursed. He was a nobody, a fool, a loser, a cad. He hated everyone. Life was just plain bad. Placed with another couple, he was quiet and glum. All adults were heartless, mean and dumb. He'd run away at dawn's first light. No, he'd run away in the middle of the night. The woman took him upstairs, said, this is your room. Look out the window. You can see the moon. Now I'll tuck you in and you sleep tight. Then she kissed him on the cheek and said, good night. A kiss. A kiss. Had anyone ever kissed Lee? A kiss. A kiss. Who'd want to kiss me? Tears came to his eyes. They started to flow. He cried half the night, but Lee didn't go. Next morning, though, he was angry again. He'd run away the next night. They were not his kin. He'd run to his father. He'd run anywhere. No one ever had or ever would care. But breakfast smelled good, and he was a hungry child. And when he reached for a biscuit, in a voice so mild, the woman said, We say grace first here. Close your eyes and fold your hands, my dear. Well, Lee was hungry, so he did obey. But what did he hear? What did they say? Thank you, Lord, for we feel such joy that you have brought us this special boy. And the prayer went on. It didn't end there. Thank you, God, that he's in our care. What a privilege to have a child to raise, a child to brighten all our days. He couldn't believe it. They're thankful for me, thankful for sullen, angry Lee, thankful to have him in their home, thankful to call him all their own. After breakfast, to town, to go to the store, new shoes, new clothes, a haircut, and more. Now there's the school, and there's the square, and there's the park right over there. Now we know you've got two brothers here, too. You'll see them often, we promise you. 
Now we want you to meet a neighbor, a friend. Next stop is right around this bend. Lee was stunned, didn't know what to feel. Were they sincere, honest, real? Should he give these people a try? Something felt right. He didn't know why. I can see my brothers. That's what they'd said. And they said they had a pet for him, a dog named Red. A house, a home, parents, a pet. Maybe he wouldn't run just yet. Lee thought of the orphanage, New York, his past. And now here he was in Texas, Texas, so vast. All his family in New York were working on their own. Who was more likely to give Lee a real home? He looked in their faces from him to her. If he ran, it would hurt them, that's for sure. He thought, of the kiss, the promise, the prayer. And for the first time in his life, Lee realized maybe grown-ups can care. They took his hands and he walked between on what was becoming the most beautiful day he had ever seen. Because to every person they met, they said to everyone, we'd like you to meet Lee, Lee, our Son. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. I just have to, to say that Lee Nailing said, as an old man, that he honestly felt that that couple didn't just change his life, that they saved his life. He said he was such a, he said when he stepped off the train, he was not just a sad and lonely little boy, he was an angry, bitter little boy. And he said he has no idea what path in life he would have taken had it not been for that couple. And he said they just showered him with so much love, he said, I, I couldn't fight back. So that's Lee's story. Pippa White, the Nebraska storyteller, with the true story, Lee Nailing's Orphan Train story. Did you catch the numbers she said at the beginning of the story? These orphan trains ran for 75 years, carried somewhere in the neighborhood of 250,000 orphans to new homes. It's staggering to think about. And as Pippa said, not all of these stories had the happiest of endings, but like Lee Nailing, many of these children were able to find warm, loving families to care for them. I'm reminded of a couple of verses from the book of Matthew in the New Testament, those verses that say, For I was and hungered, and you gave me meat. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came unto me. Well, I wonder if in your life you can think of a time when you were lonely or desperate or in need and someone showed up for you, gave you comfort, shared a meal, offered a comfy couch to crash on for a few nights. If a story like that springs to mind from your experience, open your mouth, share it with the people you love. It may plant a seed that will lead to even more acts of kindness. In just a moment, we're going to bring in our producers, Brian and Heather, for a little talk back about that story, followed by another story of someone finding a much-needed friendship in a new place. You won't want to miss a word. I'm Sam Payne. our pleasure to hear Pippa White, a storyteller who specializes in telling historical stories, recorded live before our terrific studio audience in the Appleseed studio. That was a story called Lee Nailing's Orphan Train Story. And to chat about it for just a moment, I'm joined around the desk by our producers, Dr. Brian Tanner, Dr. Heather Bigley. Guys, thanks for joining me. Hello. Hey, great to be here. I... I love me a Pippa White story. Yeah. 
There are these really fascinating looks into uh, a, a history with which you may not have been familiar. Yeah, I certainly wasn't. This wasn't yeah. something that I knew about at all. Yeah. Um, and to hear uh, how how long this was and how many p- children were affected, yeah. that was – it was just like, how, how come I haven't heard of this before, <laughs> you know? Yeah. There's a really great novel about this that I read several years ago um, that is just filled with tragedy. Mm-hmm. This was – a beautiful sort of response to that. Yeah. Um, the, the no- I can't remember the novel's name, but the novel is sort of like, these are all the ways this could have gone bad and did go bad. Yeah. And this is, and look, here's how it worked for at least this child. Yeah. Um, and to me, it's such an important reminder that as an adult, I have a responsibility to help people feel like they belong and help mm. people feel like they're wanted. And mm-hmm. I'm often... Uh, I don't know how it works for you guys, but I often have this little voice in my head that says, now you should say this. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm th- I'm talking back to it going, really? I don't really want to say that. Nope, you got to say it. And and then I say the thing, which is, yeah. thank you, or that was lovely, or we appreciate that you've done that, or mm. we're glad you're here. You mm-hmm. know, um, things that I don't think I heard that often when I was a kid. So mm. <laughs> it's something that I have to remind myself of. Mm-hmm. And do you find yourself? Uh, I hear in your. I, I want to dig into that a little bit. Okay. Like, you, know, I, you you hear this voice saying this thing, and then do you you say the thing, and then do you find a sense of relief? I mean, is there is is that met with a with you saying in your heart, "Oh, the voice was right." Yeah. Or or do you find yourself going, "Well, <laughs> I said it." <laughs> Put my heart on my sleeve. There and, you goes. Know, Even, yeah. I like that what you said there, Brian, because it's those are just normal things that people say to each other, but it does often feel like my heart is being exposed, yeah. right? Uh-huh. I'm being really vulnerable when I say to someone, um, I'm I'm really glad that you're here with us or yeah. whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um I yeah, I think often I'm like, oh, this is how this is how you're supposed this is good. And that was good to do. Yeah. Um, even if I don't automatically, you know, when you talk with young people, they themselves feel vulnerable yeah. and don't want to feel awkward. Sure. So you may say that thing and then they think, you know, in their face, they're like, please don't make this worse. Please don't make this worse. <laughs> um, but, you know, later down the road, they might come back and say, I'm glad that you said that to me. Sure. Yeah. And if there's a principle there that resonates with me, it's that sometimes you have to push through a degree of fear and a degree of skepticism to listen to and 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 heed that inner voice, right? right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And the person receiving it, like Lee Nailing, might have some barriers that they put up for yeah. legitimate reasons. Yeah. Yeah. And so you could feel like, oh, my my overture that I've made to them has fallen flat, you know, but we see in the case of Lee, a slow melting of his heart. Okay, well, I'm still going to run away, but not tonight. Yeah. Right. Okay, I'm going to delay it one more day. When what's actually happening is he's he's learning how to let love into his heart, which he'd never done before. And my question about the story is how truncated is that... Uh, evolution. Yeah. Because, you know, for the purposes of Pippa White's story, it's like two kisses and a prayer and and then yeah. You yeah. Know, things eventually resolve themselves. But in my mind, I'm thinking that would have taken months or even yeah. a year or so before yeah. he would have been like, yeah, I can be here. Or certainly in our experience, right? right. We we begin, to, to, to your earlier comment, Heather, we begin to listen to the voice that says, do this, and we do it, and the and the wall is still pretty stone, right? Yeah. right? And it's only over uh, uh, over r- r- repeated response to that inner voice, you know, right. mm-hmm. that, uh, that, that, that wall softens. You finally find yourself in a, in a meaningful relationship. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. You know, listening to this story, I was thinking about times in my life where I feel like I've been taken in uh, by someone and just the generosity that they've shown to me. And I was remembering a time when, and this was just such a terrible time in my life. I had I had whooping cough, which oh, geez, I thought was yeah. a disease back from Lee Nailing's time. You know, <laughs> turns out, guys, it's still around. <laughs> there were just periods where I was just so weak and I was living by myself and it was, it was very sad and it was very lonely and it was very hard. Um, but after this period when I wasn't contagious anymore, I just had these friends very generously say, 
come and stay with us, mm. you know? And so Lee's story is about kind of a stranger taking you in. This isn't exactly that. These were already friends of mine, but it was like they lived in a very small apartment. Yeah. They did not have a lot of room. They just had a couch for me to crash on. And that meant the world to me. Like, and they let me stay there for quite a while and they cooked me food and yeah. they kind of helped get me back on my feet again. Um, and I'll never forget that and I'll always appreciate that. And mm. that's where this story took me to. Somehow I imagine you in like a line cabin on the, in, the, in Alaska. <laughs> old man nursing you back to health. With... Uh, this was like an urban fo <laughs> fourth floor apartment. <laughs> I feel like you building. thought of Alaska because yeah. you saw his beard and you're like, As yes, <laughs> Grizzly Adams. <laughs> Grizzly Adams yeah. has helped you that's somehow. Right. I mean, I, too, thought about the times that people have taken me into their home and just welcomed me in a way that um, was unprecedented. You know, I had uh, friends of mine who allowed me to stay um, with them for the year that I needed to prepare for um, my mission. So those of you who are LDS, you know we serve a two-year mission or an 18-month mission, and um, my family wasn't supportive of that, mm. and so I needed a place to live while mm. I got ready to go on that. And um, they welcomed me, and, and I slept on a little mattress in the den. <laughs> there was no room for me. They wow. already had a passel of kids. Yeah. But um, they gave me a job, and they gave me a place to be, and uh, it was a really wonderful sense of belonging. Wow. Um, and it meant a, a ton. Um, yeah. You never know what's going to spark a memory, and you never know what memory it's going to spark. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well— Lee Nailing's story has sparked a memory for me that I'd like to share as today's entry of the Radio Family Journal. The Radio Family Journal with Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it. On the Appleseed. Some years ago, I had the chance to go to Bulgaria to do some humanitarian work. I was invited, actually, to perform a series of concerts as benefit shows for Bulgarian orphans. Bulgaria, as it turns out, has the highest orphan rate in all of Europe, and only 50% of those orphans live past the age of 20. And getting an up-close look at these kids and the people who care for them really changed my life. And it didn't just change my life. I had brought my 15-year-old son with me to Bulgaria, and watching him interact with the kids we met, well, it was something. In fact, while I have a lot of fond memories of making music in Bulgaria, setting up shows and rehearsing and then singing and playing guitar with other musicians and then watching some good come from those interactions, I think the most potent memories for me are of the experiences my son had, the things he saw, the people he met, the work he got to do, the way he was changed by the people and places he got to know and love. Well, the trip took place years ago, but memories from the trip come back to me from time to time. Take over, really, like memories can and sometimes do. They arrest you when you least expect it. I remember one of the days of the trip, a windy, cold day. We visited an orphanage, as we did on most days of the trip. It was a big gray concrete building in the heart of Sofia, the capital city of Bulgaria, our host, the head of the organization that had brought us there, was in meetings with the orphanage staff. And the rest of us just hung out for a while with the orphans, mostly teenagers who would be in the orphanage system until their 18th birthday, when they'd be turned out to, well, to fend for themselves. And there at the orphanage, we met Sneshka, a young girl enchanted by foreign visitors. Sneshka was about 14 she was friendly and smart, and when she saw that we had a photographer with us, she wanted her photo taken. Well, we snapped her picture, and she hurried over to the photographer. She wanted to see the photo on the camera screen, and when she saw it, she tapped on the back of the camera and said something urgent in Bulgarian. Again and again, she said it, and we asked our interpreter what it was Sneshka was saying, and the translation gave us pause. Don't erase me, the girl was saying. Don't erase me. Over and over, she said it. Don't erase me. 
Sneska didn't have a camera herself. She didn't have a computer screen on which to view pictures. There was no easy way for us to share those photos with her. But in a world that had, in a lot of ways, cast her off. Snezhka just wanted someone somewhere to look at a picture of her every once in a while and think fondly on her. Well, I've got that photo. It's among my favorite photos from the trip. She's standing in the hallway of her orphanage, that crumbling, gray, concrete building, and my son is standing next to her. And the truth is, that photo works like photos do. Looking at the photo brings other people from that trip to mind. There's a whole host of orphans and a host of the people who care for them who are all brought back to mind for me every time I look at that photo. My care for them is reignited. My desire to help them is increased. When Sneshka asked us not to erase her and when we responded by keeping and caring for that photo, she made permanent space in our hearts for every aspect of that life-changing trip. And it's not just me who feels that way. The organization that took us to Bulgaria uses that photo of Sneshka and other photos from the trip to keep memories sharp and to invoke in people a desire to assist in the humanitarian work being done all the time at a rapidly increasing pace. And of course, my son is affected too by that photo taken in the orphanage. He's a grown-up now. He still talks about that trip, though. Talks about Sneshka. Specific memories come to him, and he shares them with me and with others. Well, I think we're all like Sneshka a little bit. We all need to know that somewhere there are those who will leave our pictures in their wallets, on their walls or on their screens, look at them from time to time, and think fondly on us. And though most of us feel alone sometimes, feel like no one remembers us or understands us, for most of us it's true, true to a greater extent perhaps than we even realize. Someone, somewhere, won't erase us. As I say that, it's just possible that maybe you're thinking of someone. Maybe at the thought of the person who would never erase you, a face or a name came to mind. A face or a name of a person who, even in your absence, makes a place in their heart for you in your world. What if you gave that person a call? Reaching out like that might contain the makings of the best story you'll hear all day or the best story you'll tell. The Radio Family Journal of Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it, on the Appleseed. Thanks for joining me for that entry in the Radio Family Journal. And it was a real pleasure to talk with Heather and Brian about Lee Nailing's orphan train story. Just one of a number of orphan train stories that Pippa White brings to stage and to recordings. It was our pleasure to have her as a guest in the Appleseed studio performing before our studio audience. We're glad to have captured that and to have brought it to you. Heather, Brian, thanks for joining me. Thank you. Always great to be here. Lots more coming up on The Appleseed. We started out today's hour with a historical story of a boy starting life in a new home. And now we've got a modern story on kind of that same subject. And it starts with an unexpected and rather startling request. One day I was home alone with Daddy, and as I climbed the stairs, Daddy came out of the lounge and wanted to talk. He was concerned about me because I was his baby. My sister Deborah was married... What you're hearing are the words of a middle-aged woman remembering the final days before her father died. It's one of her most sacred memories, and it was captured on paper shortly before her own passing. But this is obviously not her voice. You might think the voice reading this precious memory is a family member or a long-term friend, but that's not it either. So who is this guy? 
My name is Ben Shalati. I'm a native of Everett, Washington. Uh, I recently published a book called A Walk in My Shoes, Questions I'm Often Asked as a Gay Larry Saint. And I host a podcast with my friend Charlie Bird called Questions from the Closet, where we discuss questions people often have uh, about the LGBTQ Larry Saint experience. As Ben stated, he's a native of Washington, but this story comes from the period in his life when he was working on his Ph.D. in Tucson, Arizona. The story begins when Ben was asked to give a ride to church to a lady that he had never met. Her name is Georgina. And so when I picked her up, I was surprised by, by how small she was. And on the 10-minute drive to church, she told me that she had anorexia, that she was an immigrant from England, that she was lonely, and hadn't been to church for a long time. Ben could tell right away that Georgina really needed a friend. So he invited her out to lunch later that week. And at that lunch, she hit Ben with an unexpected request. And while we were at lunch, she asked me if I was a writer. And I said, well, I write for school. I write papers for school, but I'm not really a writer. And she said, well, I, I feel like I'm going to die in the next few years. Would you be willing to write my life story for me? So at this moment, Ben had had only two interactions with Georgina, that ride to church and now this lunch. And now she's asking him to write her life's story. And what was Ben's response? And I said, why not? You know, <laughs> what, what could it hurt? Why not? What could it hurt? That seems a little incredible to me that someone would agree so nonchalantly to such an enormous request from someone they barely knew. So I pressed him to find out why he had said yes. You know, sometimes you're asked to do something that just feels right. And in this case, it just felt right. It just felt like you know, the way I describe, like, feeling impressions from God, you know, there's, like, that gut feeling, but it just feels like uh, the word I like is impression because it feels like something that like, gets pressed on me. And, like, the desire to say yes and do it just felt pressed on me. Like, it was something I, I was supposed to do, that I was meant to do. So, a week later, they go to lunch again. And Ben scarfs down his food quickly and then takes out his laptop and starts asking Georgina questions about her life. And he types her answers as she speaks. And it was very evident once we started uh, just how meaningful it would be to her. And later, you know, I didn't realize this right away, but how meaningful it would be to me as well. They continue these lunches for months, and Ben got to know more and more about Georgina. On June 8th, my daddy was going to have a party at his house. I had done something to my back, so I was still healing. I was hanging out in Julian's dorm. He was struck by how different her life had been from his life. She struggled not only with eating disorders, but also OCD, depression, anxiety. She was an immigrant from England and had come to the U.S. as an undocumented immigrant. They really were from different worlds. But the longer they knew each other, the more time they began to spend outside of their weekly writing sessions. And slowly, a true friendship emerged. She was one of my best friends in Tucson. You know, this this 55-year-old woman, you know, and a, and a 32-year-old man, like, who would have expected us to be, to be best buds? Unfortunately, they never finished writing Georgina's story. She was, like, getting rambly one day, and I said, hey, could you, like, make an outline the next time we meet? It would just be easier for me to type if you have an outline. And she said, sure. And then the next time she, she had forgotten, and so I was like, well, we'll do it next time. And it just kind of got pushed off, and we, we never finished the project. Ben ended up moving away from Tucson, and about a year later, Georgina passed away, just as she had predicted she would on that very first car ride together. The fact that they hadn't finished the story gnawed at Ben after Georgina's death. Shortly after I found out that she died, I had a dream that she and I were, were at lunch together, and I told her in the dream that she had died, and then we had to finish writing her story because we didn't get to finish. And then I woke up and just, like, felt this, like, sinking feeling that, you know, I, we had the opportunity to finish it, and we didn't. But despite those regrets, Ben was able to feel at peace with his relationship with Georgina when he looked back on his journal entries from his days in Tucson. Tons of stories of Georgina are in my journal because I, I wrote about her. And so I wrote about all these, like, experiences we'd had and these adventures we'd gone on and, you know, these spiritual moments. And so I thought, you know, I didn't get to hear all of Georgina tell her life story to me, but I was also part of her life story. When Georgina asked Ben to write her life story, she imagined that her story would be published for a wide audience to read. Ben, however, realized from the start that that 
probably wasn't realistic. But something special did happen to the unfinished manuscript after Georgina died. By this time, Ben had become close to Georgina's teenage son, and he was going through her belongings and discovered a printout of the story. And he didn't know that I had written it because it was just titled with Georgina's name and then her story. And I said, well, actually, your mom and I wrote that together. And he just thanked me and said how wonderful it was to have these stories that he hadn't known about. So even though they didn't finish writing Georgina's story, Ben has made sure that her legacy lives on. In the years since her death, Ben has become an in-demand speaker, a popular podcast host, and a published author. At the time when Georgina asked Ben to write her life story, Ben didn't really consider himself a writer at all. But years later, he found himself with a book deal to write about his experiences as a faithful member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, who's also gay. And Ben ended up writing an entire chapter about Georgina and the lessons he learned from her. The chapter centered on how many of the milestones he had envisioned hitting by that point in his life, getting married, starting his own family, hadn't come to fruition and didn't seem to be on the horizon. And then I turned 30 and I wasn't married. I thought, well, have I failed at life? And so at this time where I was like trying to figure out, well, what does life look like when you're, when you're in your 30s and single? That's when she came into my life. And so it was really this, this relationship that taught me to be okay as a single person. So that's the story of how these two friends, with so little in common, came together in Tucson, Arizona. They may not have known each other long, but both of their lives were richer for the time they spent together. She was lonely. I, in some ways, was lonely. And instead of being lonely, we could be together. That was author and podcast host Ben Shalati, And it was a pleasure for me to talk to him about what must have been kind of a singular experience, having someone you hardly know ask you to write their story. And not an easy story at that, a story in which you had to capture and convey hardships that were not your own. And to also try to convey hope and optimism within those hardships If someone were to take on the project of writing your life story down, what are some of the things you'd really hope would be included? Is there anything you'd hope wasn't included? And if someone else asked you to write down their story, what sort of questions would you ask? A person's story, after all, is one of the most precious things they have. How would you work to make sure it was treated carefully? Well, friends, we started off this hour with a great story from Pippa White. And I do love a Pippa White story. And we do have just a few more minutes. And so we want to bring you one more story from Pippa. It was also recorded before a terrific live audience in the Appleseed studio. And we think it makes a nice pairing with Pippa's previous story. That story, of course, at the top of the hour was Lee Nailing's orphan train story. And like that story, this is a true story from history about a brave and resourceful kid. The boy in this story is named Olaf, and like Lee, he's living in difficult times. It's World War II, and his home country of Norway has been occupied by the Nazis. And as you'll hear, he gets into a very dangerous confrontation with some Nazi guards. It's a gripping story, and while you listen to it, It might bring to mind times when you've heard that inner voice prompting you to do something or maybe not to do something. We always hope that the stories we share with you on the show spark memories you can share with the people that you love around the kitchen table or the living room. So here's Pippa White with Olaf's story here on The Appleseed. Thank you, Sam. This is another kid story. I like like kid heroes. This is Olaf's story. Olaf lived in Oslo, Norway. And when the Nazis invaded in 1939, like many citizens of invaded countries, uh, Olaf did not want to welcome them. And so even as a boy, he did annoying little things to make life difficult for the Nazis. He was 11 when the war began, and of course that's six years, so he was really 
by the time he was a teenager, he was a bona fide resistance fighter, taking tremendous risks. Anyway, uh, I love this story, not just for what happened, but because of its little moral. So here is Olaf. Important to all Norwegians during the war was simply information. We wanted to know what was happening in the Pacific and in the rest of Europe. This led to the creation of several illegal newsletters. Some brave person would listen to the BBC, copy everything down, then type it up in a newspaper format, run it off on a Mimeo machine, and distribute these newsletters. Distribution fell to kids. My uncle on my mother's side created one of those newsletters, and so at an early age, I had a paper route. Incidentally, the punishment for being caught with even one illegal newspaper was death on the spot. One weekend, I had to bicycle out of the city a long way to a farm. The, the farmer and my dad were bartering. My dad was taking him potato mash and flour, and in return, we were going to get meat, cream, and grain. It was a long bike ride, so I had to stay the night at the farm. Next morning, I put into my rucksack the meat and the cream and the grain, and on top of that were 50 illegal newsletters. And then I made my way home. I'm telling you, it was a long bike ride. It was fall, and in Norway in the fall, it gets dark pretty early. And when it gets dark, it gets really dark. I was bicycling close to home. I was almost home. I was coming up on the intersection of Drammen's Road and Church Road when my inner voice told me I shouldn't go there. I should just take the shortcut through my friend Barbro's yard. But I thought to myself, I'd have to get off the bike, push the bike uphill, go through two gates. Nah, it just seemed simpler to stay on the nice flat road. And then I saw it, a German checkpoint. They were in the dark, which is why I didn't see them, but they'd have seen my bicycle light, so there was no turning back now. Oh, this was very, very bad. I came to a stop. There were four soldiers. Lieutenant came out. There were three other soldiers. They all had rifles. The lieutenant had an automatic Schmeiser pistol. He said, well, 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 young man. You have a very full rucksack there. Let us see what you have. And then he went back to talk to his friends. I got off the bike, put it on the kickstand, took my rucksack off, and I began to fiddle with the belt buckle. I bent the buckle as best I could. I stuck the belt under the flap. All I could do was stall. There was nothing else I could do but stall. I couldn't run. You can't outrun a bullet. I kept fiddling away there. The lieutenant came and said, oh, what, are you having trouble there? And I said, yeah, the, the buckle's just a little bit bent, but I, I think I can take care of it, lieutenant. He walked back away to his friends. He was polite and friendly, and I wanted to be as friendly as I could so as not to provoke him into any impatience. Anyway, I got the flap open, but then I started on the string of the rucksack. I made another knot in that. Then I began to fiddle with that. He came out, said, oh, now, now you're having trouble with the string there. Here, I have a pen knife, a knife and, I, and I have a, a flashlight. Let me do it for you. Oh, please give me just one minute, Lieutenant. I really think I can get it if you'll just give me one minute. This was so bad. I was sweating profusely. Inside was, was not just the newsletters, but my ID card. It would give our address. We had a whole bunch more newsletters at home. This was so bad. And then I saw the three other soldiers with the rifles walk into the middle of the street, and I heard something. I turned around, and there came a big bus. The bus stopped in front of the soldiers. It was crowded. It was full of people and parcels and packages and suitcases. There were even people sitting on the top of the bus. 
The lieutenant took one look at it and said, oh, God in the Himmel, this is going to take us hours. Go on, get out, get out, get home with you, go on. Oh, the work of this. I was only too happy to get back on my bike and pedal away. But this would have been really bad. Also in my rucksack was a letter from the farmer to my father. That farmer had a plant on his land. He was making sten guns for the resistance. This was a very, very close call. And I realized I was only 13 years old at this point, but uh, I knew too much. But I'd learned something else. I had learned that never ever again was I ever going to ignore that inner voice. Good advice. Good advice for anyone. Thank you, my friends. Thank you very, very much. My pleasure. <laughs> Thank you very much. Very nice. Nice to have been here. Olaf's story, a true tale from World War II, told for you by the wonderful Nebraska storyteller Pippa White. The story was recorded live in the Appleseed studio, and it's been a pleasure to be part of this hour with you on the Appleseed, where great stories can change your family's world. Before we go, we wanted to say thank you to those who have taken the time to send an email to the show. You know, we're on Instagram and Facebook, and we recently got a message on the Appleseed Facebook page from a listener named Deanna Marie, and she said, I love listening to all your broadcasts, and my great-grandchildren have loved listening over and over as well to Treasure Island and The Glass Cutter. Thanks a million to everyone involved in creating such a fabulous family show. Thanks for that kind note, Deanna Marie. The Glass Cutter and Treasure Island, it should be said, are terrific audio dramas that we've been excited to have a hand in creating. And you can find those at BYUradio.org. You can find them uh, on the BYU Radio app. And of course, uh, we work hard to bring you a show that the whole family can enjoy and talk about together. So we appreciate hearing feedback from our listeners. If you listen to the show as a podcast and it's available on all major podcast platforms, we'd ask you to leave a rating or a review. More ratings and reviews help people find the show. We love to share the notes that people share with us and who knows, we might just read yours on a future episode. We're pleased and proud to be among the many shows in the BYU Radio family of programs and you can find this episode or any episode from our archive on the BYU Radio app at byuradio.org slash Appleseed or by Googling the Appleseed podcast. I'm Sam Payne and I can't wait to be with you again on the Appleseed. Appleseed.